0: And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, "Excuse me. See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: All right, so check this out. I don't know when this first took place. But we have this tradition in the Christian faith in America that when you pray, you close your eyes. You guys are familiar with this? I, I've done some research on it. Um, I think around the 1950s this started happening because, like, um, you don't see it in the scriptures anywhere. And different faith traditions do different things when they pray. Um, and it, uh, what I read is, like, um, these kids that were coming into, like, Sunday school, they closed their eyes because the teachers were like, it's way too distracting, we can't really pray, so close your eyes and focus on Jesus And then pray. I say that because um, when the scripture was just being read, I had to close my eyes and focus because of the distraction of the beauty on my left. (laughs) My wife of 15 years was reading and I was in the back. Just don't look at her. Just just focus on the scriptures. I can't get distracted because I'm more distracted now than i was 20 years ago when i met her from her beauty which is how it should be right so that doesn't really have anything to do with the text with where we're going but um i'm continually distracted and overtaken by her which is a good thing after being married that long um for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Demeter. As, as Sean said, I'm one of the active elders here along with Jim. And from time to time, you'll hear myself or Jim get up and teach, although Sean is usually the one that's up here. I think he may have mentioned that he is helping in elementary today, which I love. I tried to invite all my friends with their craziest kids to, like, go so Sean would have to, like, deal with them. So he is probably yelling at your children as we speak <laughs> if they're in there because he likes to yell. <clears throat> But I love that idea that um, we are sharing the load. Um, No one person is greater than any other in this body. Like, God has called Sean to do this full-time as a vocation, but he recognizes, listen, I'm going to serve just like you serve. I'm going to carry the load just like you carry the load. No one person is better than the other. And for some of the context of how my wife and I got to Redemption Peoria, we've been on staff with a ministry called Athletes in Action for the last 14 years. And this ministry seeks to minister to college and professional athletes to really help them understand what the gospel looks like both in their sport and in their life. And college and pro athletics is a very dark reality. If you're not aware, it looks kind of shiny on the outside, but there are locker rooms of deep, empty souls of men and women that have no clue who they are. Um, They've been told one thing, that their worth is based on their performance their whole life, and they begin to believe that lie, and we get to come in And help correct that thinking through the gospel, and it's beautiful. And so we served most recently at the University of Arizona for seven years in the athletic department, working with the athletes and the coaches, Um, and God began to shift our role within the organization to run the ultimate training camps. And so... um, That happened about three years ago, and doing that, we could live wherever we wanted. We weren't bound to a city um, with a campus, and so we decided to come back to Phoenix. This is where we're from. My wife and her family are here, and so the first question we had when we knew we were going to come back up here is like, where are we going to go to church? It's like a big question for us because we had a lot of friends up here, a lot of great churches in the valley. We were pretty sure we were going to come back Northwest. And just the reality of, like, that idea, like, where do I go to church, is there's this tension of, like, you know, like, what do, do I like the music? Do I identify with the songs? Is the, is the preaching from the where are these people? Do I connect with the people? There's that whole um, tension. And then there's this other tension of, like, God, where do you want me to go? God, where are you calling me to be a part of a body? And so as we began to navigate both of those waters, God was orchestrating things behind the scenes, as he often does, to begin to birth Redemption Peoria, and we love being here. We love being with you guys. We love the body that we get to do life with on Tuesday nights at our Redemption community, and we just love what God's doing. And I came across a blog this week um, from the Gospel Coalition, which is a website that was it was talking about this idea of this idea of a church and how you find a church, and um, kind of hovering around some of those ideas. and the article is entitled "The Danger of Seeking Your Dream Church." It's by a pastor named Brian Borgman out of Nevada, and when I read it, it just so resonated with what I want church to be. Listen to some of the stuff he says in it. He says, "Brothers and sisters." How we must guard against our own dreams and wishes of what the church ought to be. The church isn't about my likes or dislikes, my political views or my personal convictions. When these dreams or wishes govern the way we evaluate church, we become critics of the church as we stand in judgment over it. The church is about God's truth, God's people, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and fellowshipping with sinners who have been saved by grace. The treasure of the church isn't people who comp, um, compromise the, or comprise the membership and wave the right flags. The treasure of the church is Jesus Christ himself as he comes to us in the gospel. And if that's true, if, if that phrase, that the treasure of the church is Christ himself as he comes to us in the gospel then every time we gather to examine the text, every time we look at the scriptures and we open the Bible, every time we gather corporately to sing to God and to one another, we need to ask the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? What does it have to do with the gospel? And that's the crux of what we've been looking at in the book of Mark for the last five months in this building. This idea of opening the text and saying, who is Jesus? And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that the way that Mark sets up his gospel, he he basically breaks it into two sections. The first section, the first eight chapters is is that same question, like, who is Jesus? And we find out as readers, we know who Jesus is. And Sean has mentioned this from up front almost every time, that the only people who really know who Jesus is in the first eight chapters of the gospel of Mark are the demons. They're the ones that really recognize Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples are trying to figure out these other people getting healed. They're going, I'm not sure who this dude is. There's something about him, but I I don't exactly know who he is. And then Jesus turns the corner at the end of chapter 8, and he makes it crystal clear to his followers who he is and what his mission is about. And as he continues to unfold who he is, Mark uses very different, two very different figures in our text today to illustrate this truth of the essence of Jesus' kingdom and how you can enter it. Before we unpack the passage... Um, I really feel like we need a little bit of clarity on this phrase, enter the kingdom, or what the kingdom is. We've kind of talked about it before up front. Um, Let's just do a quick review of what is the kingdom, this word, if we're trying to enter it, what actually it is. And the kingdom is the power of God from heaven, entering the world and redeeming and restoring all things kingdom is the power of God from heaven entering into the world and redeeming and restoring all things, all angles of brokenness. Because in the beginning, God created. We see it in Genesis 1 and 2. He created, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates beauty and abundance and order, and everything is good. And this last part of creation, he creates man, and he creates man differently, man and woman, with the ability to choose and to reflect him in those choices. And you see it in Genesis chapter 3. Most of you know the story that in Genesis chapter 3, we choose not God. They get tricked. Adam and Eve get tricked into believing their way is better. Their way's better than God's way. Right? It's the same trick we fall for today, that our, our way is better than what God is telling us to do. And they get tricked, and then sin is what the Bible calls it, enters the picture of the story, of the narrative. And now everything is marred. It doesn't look at, 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 as it was originally created to look. There's still beauty because God created, it, but now there's brokenness in the world. And Jesus initiates His kingdom when He comes to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, and raise, defeating death, so that one day all sin, all sin, will be gone. And theologians would say that the kingdom is here, but it's not yet. It's been initiated, that, that we have the opportunity as we trust Jesus to have the, the shackles of sin broken, but we still sin. We still make those mistakes, and one day Jesus will come back a second time, and all sin will be taken away, and we'll be able to be with God in his glory forever. The kingdom is Jesus' leading image of his mission the kingdom is counterintuitive. Um, it's kind of this idea that it's flipped upside down, like the way up is down. You would think to go up, you go up, but actually you go down to go up in God's kingdom. And we saw it in Mark 38, 35, a couple weeks ago, that when Jesus says, Forever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And then we see it here in the passage At the end of the text in verse 31, the first will be last and the last will be first. God's kingdom is counterintuitive. And the last thing, that the gospel is the proclamation of God's kingdom and that it's come. Gospel means good news. You're proclaiming the kingdom is here. It is started. Let me tell you about it. So when we talk about sharing the gospel or being gospel-centered, we're talking about the kingdom, the power of God from heaven through Christ, entering the world and redeeming and restoring all things. That's going to be important as we jump into the text here, since Jesus uses this phrase, enter the kingdom, four times in what Teresa read. So Mark, chapter 10, verse 13, let's do our best to understand what the text is going to teach us. Let me read, starting in verse 13 again. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. What is happening here? So um, as we already established, Jesus has made claim to who he is, that he is the Messiah, what his mission and kingdom is about. So once that happened at the end of chapter 8, the disciples now are beginning to, to have an understanding of wh- what Jesus is here, what, what we're going to do. And their idea of the kingdom was that Jesus was going to come with political force. He was going to overthrow Rome, and everything was going to be great. And so they are attempting to help Jesus stay on task in this story. Right? They, they are helping Jesus stay with his tr- strategic plan. We are heading to Jerusalem. We're on our way. We have things to do. We have governments to overthrow. We don't have time. I don't think the disciples were against the children being blessed. Culturally, what was happening was... Um, You would bring your children to the temple and the rabbi would say a blessing over them, much like we do here in our Christian tradition of like um, a dedication, a children dedication of like bring your child up front. We're going to pray that God would change this child's heart, that they would follow after you as a congregation. We're going to own accountability of walking with this child. That As a parent, you say, yes, I'm going to do my best to raise this child as unto the Lord. It's very similar to what was happening. And you see it, Jesus even goes as a child to be dedicated or to have a blessing from the rabbi. So that's what's happening. So I don't think these disciples were like angry, anti-kid. They were just focused on the mission. They're focused. We don't have time for that, Jesus. Don't you know we need to get to Jerusalem? I don't don't know how many times I've, in an attempt to help Jesus in his mission, have probably like really hindered people coming. Dang it, exactly right. Right, like I'm trying to help Jesus and like I'm screwing it up. And that's what's happening here with the disciples. They don't think these kids are important. Jesus uses it as a teaching illustration to say, no, 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 no. Let, Let me help you. Let me help your thinking about the kingdom because it's still, it's not right. You need some realignment. Let me help you. Understand what the kingdom is really like. Don't don't hinder these children from coming to me. And so he calls them, and he says this. He says in verse fifteen, "Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it." What does Jesus mean to receive? A kingdom like a child. I believe um, it's forcing us to. I've kind of bottlenecked it down to two two main areas of, of what Jesus is trying to say here, illustration wise. Is one is that you need to be dependent. Children are dependent. We don't know exactly the age. Um, Luke has the same account, and he uses the word infants. The original language, um, it says little children or infants is the definition, so you don't really know. If, if you look at the, um, the way the Greek, the, the verb of come to me when Jesus is saying that, he is talking to the children, so that kind of indicates they probably can understand him and walk to him. Um, but regardless if it's an infant or a toddler, like children need their parents. They come into this world dependent on their parents, which I'm very grateful in April during tax season, because I have three of them, and I claim them as dependents, and I get money back. Not enough, but I get some back, right? Children are dependent on their parents. Are you dependent on Jesus. Like from a salvation standpoint, from this idea of like um, having crossed from death to life, John 5 24 talks about, Jesus is talking about truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and understands who sent me, he is crossed from death to life. He will not enter into eternal judgment. So from that perspective, from a salvation perspective, we are totally dependent. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Nothing we can do We have to be totally dependent to come to the Lord for the first time. But not only when you cross that line from death to life, and now you are adopted, or as theologians say, you're you're regenerated, your heart starts beating again when it was dead because of God and his spirit, you still need to be dependent on him. You still need the gospel. The gospel is just as much for that person that doesn't know Jesus as it is for me. I need the saving truth of Jesus because what happens is I start to depend on other things. And I don't depend on Christ. Children are so dependent. And Jesus is saying, look, look, look at this. You need to be dependent like a child to enter into the kingdom. And I would suggest you can't really move into the dependence without vulnerability. Vulnerability which is like my wife's favorite word, vulnerability, which is, I don't really like it, man. It's like you're exposed, like you're, there's risk involved. I, I'm not really sure I'm down with that all the time. But to be dependent, you need to be vulnerable. And we see it in children. Children are vulnerable. That's why we try to protect them. So the first thing is being dependent The second thing I think Jesus is illustrating for us here in the sense of a child is that children are meant to be under the authority of their parents. They're meant to be under the authority of their parents. If I go tell my daughter to go clean her room, I say, Ryan, go clean your room. She's right there. Ryan, go clean your room, right? Like if I say that, there should not be There should not be a 20-point debate that ensues, which is usually what happens. (laughs) Right? Because she needs to obey. How many times have you, parents, like how many have you uttered this phrase? Like, obey the first time. Obey the first time. She needs to obey me. She needs to be under my authority. Because I love her. And I care for her. And I want the best for her. I'm trying to train her to clean up her room for a reason, not just because I don't like a messy room. And Jesus is pointing out, like, are, are, are you under my authority to enter into my kingdom and continue to enter? Are you, are you under my authority? Are you under God's authority? Do you look at the scriptures and it says, okay, like, it's pretty pretty black and white here. It says you need to forgive Forgive as I have forgiven you. How many times? Well, infinite times, right? So you need to continue to forgive. Well, God, ah, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to forgive. I don't think you really know what that person did to me. Um, they're not forgiving. Like, I know this person in my community, and they still hold a grudge. Like, I'm not sure the forgiveness thing. and So we twist the scripture. We begin to rationalize it. We begin to um, uh, have these debates with God of like, wow, maybe that's not really what it means. Maybe I can just, you know, um, do some stuff before I get married. Like, I think that's that's not really clear in the original. Come under the authority of God's word, knowing it's because he loves you. He wants the best for you. He's not trying to um, be mean to you. He wants the best for you and you need to come under his authority as a child comes under the authority of a parent. So those are the two things as I read this text, verses 13 through 16, that Jesus is illustrating to his disciples of like, listen, you need to enter the kingdom like a child. You need to be dependent. You need to be vulnerable and you need to come under the authority just like a child is dependent and comes under the authority of their parents. Which is fascinating when we look at the next character in our story. Starting back up in verse 17. Let me read it for us. 17. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Disheartened the man, disheartened by the saying the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What do you feel like is the thing blocking you from Jesus? What's the thing that you're just you're just not ready to give up yet? And then this story, again, the disciples, they're back on the path, man. Okay, we, we kind of understood the kid thing. I'm not sure we really got it, but now we're moving. We're headed to Jerusalem, it says in the text. We're back on path. And so they're going, and this young man, um, the other text in, in Luke and Matthew talk about that he's young and he's rich. And cu- he comes up in some type of humble way, and he kneels at Jesus, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? And this was kind of a way to begin classical talk with rabbis at that time. They would use this phrase, what, what must you do to enter into eternal life? And it was kind of this idea of like, what does it really mean to live and walk with God? That's what this young man was asking. Because the reality is, he says, like, listen, and Jesus is, he's, he's so nasty, right? Like, he's like the Bobby Fischer of spiritual conversations, the chess player, right? Like, he's like, he's five moves ahead of this guy. Right. He's just baiting him to get to the final question, to dig at his heart, to really get underneath all this stuff. Let's let's really deal with your heart, not all this outside peripheral stuff. So Jesus asked him, like, like, what about these commands? Have you done these commands? And and the one specifically that stood out to me as I was reading and studying this is the, the idea of do not defraud. Right. That, that's not in the Ten Commandments. Um, do not steal is, but like defrauding is kind of this idea of like, um, have you taken advantage of somebody else to gain wealth for yourself? Right? We see this in the tax collectors in the scriptures in the biblical times. Like they would go and they would say, okay, you owe, you owe Rome 20% and you owe Rome 25%. And then they would take 5% off the top for themselves illegally. And so that's what Jesus was asking. Like, like have you gained off other people's poverty for your own wealth? Because in a lot of situations, that's what happens when you make money. And the guy seems to be honest. The man seems to be honest. He says, no, like, since my youth, I have kept all of these. And he's saying this. He's saying, listen, I have tried to climb the ladder. And that time, like, um, the idea of a blessing uh, monetarily or or a lot of money was like God was blessing you. He had his hand of blessing over you. And we see it in the opposite where Jesus is uh, healing crippled people. And and his disciples are like, okay, who committed this sin? Is it this man or was it his father? Because there was this idea, this philosophy of, like, if you did the good things, God would bless you. He would take care of you money-wise. And if, like, you didn't do things, like, you, you became poor and, like, crippled and, and so Jesus is correcting that thinking again. It's like, because this guy was thinking, man, I've done everything right. I followed the moral law. Like, I feel like I'm blessed by it. And I'm still, there's, there's something missing. There's still something missing. When I go to bed at night and I put my head, like, it's, I'm not fulfilled. Jesus, what is it that will fulfill me? And again, Jesus cutting to his heart. He sees the thing blocking him, and he says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So clearly the thing in this passage, the thing that was blocking this young man from understanding Jesus, entering into his kingdom, and experiencing the love and forgiveness that Jesus was trying to offer him was money. And money's not necessarily a, a bad thing, right? Like, but w- what does money represent? Like, what does it promise us, right? How do you feel if, like, you got, you got a fat bank account? Like, you've got, you've got a lot of money. How does that make you feel? You feel safe? You kind of have this kind of feeling of security to some point? Like, you, you feel um, like you can depend on yourself, I know money does funny things. Man, money um, makes people think they are the authority. Donald Trump is a perfect example of that. He, he, he is self-imposed as an authority because he is rich. Right? And I've worked with athletes that um, are young and uh, good-looking, and because of the, the glorification of sport, they are very wealthy. And you know what happens when they get that wealth? They start to be around people, a lot of the times it's not on purpose, that just want to say yes to them. They just, yeah, okay. Because they're worried that if they say anything negative to this person, man, I could lose my relationship with this person. And somehow I gained status from this wealthy, famous person. I I know them. We're friends. And so there's nobody a lot of times in those circles really calling somebody out to say, listen, this is wrong. You need to stop this. And then when that happens, a lot of times, half the time, the people I've worked with, they just, no, I don't know. What are you talking about? There is a danger in having a lot of money because it brings this illusion of control or this idea of um, self-dependence. And at the end of the day, this man's righteousness seemed to be dependent on his moral character and his wealth. And when confronted with true authority, to say, listen, I'm going to tell you how it is. You need to, this is the thing blocking you. He, he walks away. He's not willing to give it up. He's not willing to be obedient to the authority. Let's keep reading Mark 23, chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around. And said to his disciples, "How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God." And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again to them, "Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God." And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, "Then who can be saved?" But Jesus looked at them and said, "With man, it is impossible." but not with God for all things are possible with God and so Jesus as this man walks away i don't know what he must have been feeling of just oh no don't walk away don't 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 leave like you're going to give me up like don't do that and he turns to his disciples in another teachable moment, he says, "Listen, this is why it 's hard to have great wealth because it blocks you from me." And this phrase that Jesus uses it 's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. there's quite a bit of um, commentary and rhetoric on this passage. What the heck is Jesus saying? like um, i 've heard it taught a couple different ways. Um, there's actually a wall in." Um, outside of Jerusalem that has a tiny opening. And if you're trying to go through it with a camel, you've got to, like, take everything off. And that wall was not even built until much later, kind of as a tourist attraction to this verse. So if you taught it that way, you're wrong. Um, so, so it's not really that idea. It's really this hyperbole or this phrase that Jesus is using to say, like, listen, you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. In that historical context, another phrase would be an, an elephant through the eye of a needle. And so we, we have these phrases today, right? We would say, like, yeah, until pigs fly, man. You Like, if, if somebody looked at that 200 years later or 2,000 years later and was like, that, what is what does that mean? Like, pigs really fly? Like, maybe there's a flying pig. No, like, it means it ain't no way it's happening, right? A snowball's chance in hell. That's another phrase we use. Like, it's just... It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. This is what Jesus is saying. For somebody that is rich and they are self-dependent and they don't come under anybody's authority, they cannot enter the kingdom because their pride is blocking them. And so the disciples are like, there now they're super confused. Because at first they were like, they're trying to shoo away the kids because we're on mission. And now this young, upward mobile dude comes up, and he's got money, and he's good looking, and he's morally upright. Like, he needs to be with us, Jesus. Like, we need, like, like, on the way to Jerusalem, I would much rather be in a comfortable situation. Like, he can bring money. Like, what, like, he needs to be on our board. Like, let's go. Like, and Jesus is like, No. And he puts a hard line in front of a boundary in front of him, and the guy walks away, and now the disciples are like, "What? What in the world? And then who? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Like this dude is moral, he's rich, he's, he's got all the things we're looking for. Like if he can't enter, who can enter?" And Jesus is saying, "It's not possible. It's not possible without me. Climb all the ladders you want of morality. It does not matter. That ladder is still leaning on the wrong wall. Jesus said, It's only possible with God. It's only possible with God to enter the kingdom of God. Let's keep going. Verse 28 Peter said to him, See, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or fathers, or children, or lands, for my sake and the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and the age to come, eternal life, But many who are first will be last. Um, I love Peter, right? Because he's just saying what everybody's thinking all the time in the text. It's like, Peter, the other dudes are probably like, shut up, Peter. Like, and he's just like, well, what? Did, like, so you're saying he's not in. Like, are we, are we good? Like, God, are we, like, because we've left everything. So please tell me, like, we have the green light to enter the kingdom of God. Like, are, are, are we in? That's kind of Peter's question here. And Jesus answer, answers in, um, in such a beautiful way, I think. He says, "Truly, whoever has left a ho- house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and the sake of the gospel, um, where where do you get your worth and your identity?" Like. W- like if, if something was taken away, or when you introduce yourself for the first time, you start this conversation of getting to you know like like what do you say about yourself? What would you say? Like, man, I'm I'm really I'm I'm really about this or I I love that. Like, like he talks about your house. Like how many times in our culture, like our home is kind of like this identity shaping, like we love having people in our home. There's nothing wrong with that. My wife is unbelievable at hospitality, but like if God ripped me out of my home and said, Move to Court site. <laughs> we would have, like, a Jacob wrestling match. Like, I'm like, I don't think I heard you correctly, Lord. Like, um, regardless of where the place is, like, um, I, I can get a sense of identity and worth from my house, from the stuff I have. What, what else does he say? Who's loved brothers or sisters, or mother or father, like, do you get a sense of worth and definition from your family? Those of you that come from good families, like, man, I love my family. Like, it's, whoo, family's where it's at. And God, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Are you willing to let go of that, the thing that's most important to you, to follow me? Well, it's your brother. So it's not just the bad things you have to leave. It's not just like, okay, I've been sinning, and man, I've been bad with my, my anger and, and my lust, and like, I need to turn from that and come to you, which is true. But Jesus is also saying the good things. Your spouse can be an idol for me. Ministry can be an idol for me. All these good things can be idols if I begin to hold them like this, and I get my ninja kung fu grip on them and i don't want to let go and jesus is saying listen who if you've left it if you hold it with an open hand and you come and you follow me that is where the rich is found it's in me it's not in your home it's not in your spouse or your family your brothers no those are good things they can be great things but true treasure is found in me And I love that he says in the text, he says, um, uh, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold in this time, right? So entering in the kingdom, it's not just like the pearly gates and once I die, I'll be with Jesus forever. Once you make that decision to cross from death to life and you trust Jesus with your life, it starts now. Like eternity, the richness of God starts now, and he's the treasure. The more you give up that stuff, the more you will get him, but like we hold on to it. We hold on to it because it gives us a sense of control, a sense of identity, and we're not dependent. We're not vulnerable. It's really, really hard, and Jesus is saying, let go. Let go of it. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable in the Christian life because it's not easy Do you think it was easy for this man to like sell everything he had, all this wealth accumulated over the years and this dude's telling me to sell it all and give it away? Like that's a hard ask. It's not easy. But it's so much better. It's so much richer in the long run. The kingdom isn't going to look like the kingdom here. God's kingdom, again, we talked about it. It, do, it doesn't look uh, to, to sell everything. It doesn't make sense in our idea of what a kingdom is. But God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is counterintuitive. He wants us to give everything so that we can get everything in him. And Jesus is the ultimate model of dependency and obedience to authority. In Philippians Chapter 2, I love this passage starting in, um, in verse 1 through 8. It should be on the screen here in a minute. Um, Philippians 2 says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy being made in the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who th- through the form, uh, or though he was, In the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he himself, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus does what he asked this young ruler perfectly. He sells everything. There's no reason Jesus should come. To, it's not Jesus' problem that things are broken. It's our problem. But he chooses to sell everything, leave the comfort of heaven, and come and walk the earth so that we could have joy, so that we could have comfort being uh, obedient to his Father. And this word sorrowful in verse 22 that we looked at, the man's disheartened and he walks away with sorrow or sorrowful. Um, The actual Greek word is lupio, which is the original language of the New Testament, lupio. And it really means like this, this grieved, like heavy heart. Like, man, this guy was like, oh, I wanted it, but I'm not, oh. And he walks the other direction. There's a couple other times that that word is used in the scriptures. And one is in Matthew Chapter 26, verse 37, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's with his followers, and it talks about that he is lupio. He is grieved of heart. Like he's heavy because the moment's about to come where he's going to have to go to the cross. And he has a choice to make. He's asked to give up Everything, the thing that is most important to him, not just the physical pain of the cross, but the thing that's most important to him is his relationship with his father, and it's going to be broken and untethered on the cross. And that's why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's alone for the first time. And it's immensely uncomfortable. He doesn't want to do it, but in obedience and dependency, he moves towards the cross so we can be free. So what are we doing? Like, why, why are we holding on to these things? Can we look to Christ as an example and ask his spirit to change us when we get in those situations where God's saying, listen, and, and that's the thing with the story. Like, God says, Jesus says to this dude, like, listen, um, leave everything. I want you to sell it all. Give it to the poor and follow me. It's not go home for a week and you know talk to your financial advisor and come back in a week and like we'll we'll settle score like no he says leave it now drop your nets we're going how many times has the spirit kind of prompted me saying say this do this and i ignore it and i say no that's that's going to be too hard that's going to be too that's going to be too hard of a conversation Ah, I'm not sure about that. And Jesus lets this guy walk away. And he lets me walk away. And I'm losing from not being obedient to the Spirit and being dependent on the Spirit like a child. The title of the sermon just kind of wrap wrap things up. Um Big Redemption, so, so if you're unaware, um, Redemption is, um, one church with multiple congregations in their different contexts, and so they have this really cool thing called a preaching collective where all the pastors in Phoenix get together 10 days out before the text, because everybody's preaching on the same text today in all the different congregations, and they talk about, like, okay, what's the purpose of this, and it's really helpful for me to go to that, um, a couple, a week and a half ago or whatever, and, um. And so we went. Uh, I went to it and, and felt like I, I got a good grasp on the text and began to study it. And then um, we were in our redemption community last Tuesday, and Josh Miles and I were talking about, okay, what songs should you sing and, and things like that that go along with the text. And we're like, well, what's the text? And he looked it up on his phone because he has, like, all the titles of, like, all the messages, and, which I never got and didn't get at the Preaching Collective. And it, the title is um, Serious About Following Jesus. And I leaned over to him when we were talking about that. I was like, is there any other way? Like, like that, that's it. You got to be serious about following Jesus. He doesn't play like that. That's it. There's no like half-hearted following Jesus. Like it just, God doesn't allow that because he loves his people. And that's the thing we have to understand about this. I love verse 21 that we already went over like, Like what, like Jesus looked at him and he loved this young man. He loved him. He didn't want to see him walk away. You're going to trade in that for me? Like, oh no, come with me. Jesus loves us. That is why he calls us to follow him seriously. What does it look like for you to be dependent and obedient in in your life, in your walk with Christ? What's it look like to be vulnerable? What kind of vulnerability do you need to embrace today? What's the risk of openness to loss that you need to be a part of? To say, I want to trust you, God, whatever you might have for me. Let's pray.